Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, February 4th, 2011. Doing our light edition of Fighting for the Faith on Friday this week. Traditionally, it's been known as Friday Light, but I'm a little scattered at times. Just saying. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, uh, once a week, we do a light edition of Fighting for the Faith. It helps uh, pick up some of the... uh, It takes a little pressure off of me on the production side of things with all the other things that I do in a day. And uh, today, where it falls on a Friday, and uh, just to let you know, uh, we're not going to do another lecture from uh, Dr. Rosenblatt's series on the two natures in Christ. Uh, the reason being is that uh, week four, uh, week fifteen, the lecture number fifteen is missing from the series, and uh, they go right to uh, week sixteen, and that's not long enough for uh, for an entire radio program. So, if you want to uh, catch the um, if you want to catch the last uh, installment of uh, Dr. Rosenblatt's lecture on the two natures in Christ, I'll put a link up to week 16 on the website, fightingforthefaith.com. Look for this episode of Fighting for the Faith, the uh, Friday, February 5th episode. Uh, I'll, put the, I'll put there a link to the final installment in Dr. Rosenblatt's uh, series on the two natures in Christ. Today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be listening to uh, two segments of a lecture presented by Dr. Charles Geeshan of uh, Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He delivered these, uh, this lecture at uh, UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, as part of uh, as part of this <clears throat> take two. I'm tripping over my uh, own tongue this uh, this this day. Anyway, uh, he, this was a part of a, a lecture sponsored by University Chapel. There's a Lutheran chapel there in uh, at UCLA, and uh, to- Dr. Charles Geeshan will be presenting a lecture on the early evidence for the historic Jesus, yeah, contra-liberalism, if you would. And so uh, with that, without any further ado, here's uh, part one of this lecture on the early evidence for the historic Jesus. When he finishes when he finishes part one, we'll take a break and then we'll listen to part two. 
as uh, part of our Friday light. So here we go. Dr. Charles Gieschen is professor of exegetical theology and chairman of the Department of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. His PhD is from the Department of Near Eastern Studies at the University of Michigan, where he studied the literature of Second Temple Judaism and early Christianity. His dissertation, entitled Angel Morphic Christology, Antecedents and Early Evidence, was published by Brill Academic Press in 1998. He also holds a Master of Theology degree in New Testament from Princeton Theological Seminary and a Master of Divinity degree from Concordia Theological Seminary. He is a member of the Society of Biblical Literature and the International Enoch Seminar. He is the associate editor of the journal Concordia Theological Quarterly and on the American editorial board for uh, of the Enoch or of the Enoch, a journal dealing with the literature of Second Temple Judaism and early Christianity. He teaches courses primarily in New Testament and is a specialist in early Christology. Tonight he will be speaking for a little over an hour, most likely, and then after that we will open up for Q&A. For the Q&A, I simply ask that you be civil. I will walk around and hand you the mic so everyone can hear your question, and Dr. Gieschen will respond kindly in time. Um, Before he comes up, though, to the podium, I ask that you all turn off your cell phones, or at least set them to vibrate, since we are recording. And you've all done that. All right, well then, please join me in welcoming Dr. Charles Gieschen. It's great to be in California again. I had um, a sister-in-law who uh, lived in um, Temple City for several years. So it was always nice to plan a family vacation to visit her right around January, February. Uh, And I know uh, on one occasion we were out for for the January 1st Rose Parade in in Pasadena. But uh, it's good to be out here. I left six inches of snow on my driveway in Fort Wayne when I left on uh, Saturday morning. And so it's nice to, to have the sunshine and to, again, uh, be on this side of, the, 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 this side of the, the United States. My topic today is, uh, as you see in your an- handout, is early evidence for the historical Jesus. The, the field that I actually work uh, a lot in is, is teaching New Testament courses, and especially my area of research is um, understanding the development of early Christology, namely how did early Christians, what what was important in terms of how they expressed the divine identity of Jesus. I'm not always going to be talking about that a lot, but that's my field. Uh, What I'd like to do is kind of step back and and talk about uh, an historical approach to uh, the um, earliest evidence for Jesus. And I'll start by as you notice in your handout, by talking about what has happened in the last 200 years in terms of historical skepticism towards the New Testament documents, just very quickly overviewing that. And I've listed for you a couple of things I'll I'll refer to. Starting with that topic, let's begin with a very terse overview of the past two centuries of Christological controversy in order to set the stage for where we are today in terms of our understanding of Jesus at the beginning of the the 21st century. Although there were several post-Enlightenment 
scholars who are uh, products of the rise of rationalism and the scientific method that sowed the seeds which blossomed into modern Christological controversies, it's probably best to begin with David Frederick Strauss. In his 1835 book, The Life of Jesus Critically Examined, Strauss approached the Gospels from the perspective that they should be read as religious text and not historical text. I actually sought to discredit them as presenting any history. The point of his attack was the miracle stories, especially the resurrection of Jesus. He characterized the miracle accounts in the Gospels as mythic presentations that symbolize the truth that Jesus is Messiah. He is the first one to make the distinction that I'll emphasize has been very prominently made generation after generation since him, the distinction between the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history. In his view, Christ's deification took place within the early church long after the death of Jesus. Although his, this early book was optimistic for the viability of Christianity after his attack on the historical foundation of Jesus, he offered this pessimistic assessment a few decades later, and I quote Strauss. The founder of Christianity is at the same time the most prominent object of worship. The system based upon him loses its support as soon as he is shown to be lacking in the qualities appropriate to an object of religious worship. This indeed has long been apparent, for an object of religious adoration must be a divinity, and thinking men have long since ceased to regard the founder of Christianity as such. End of quote. I'd like to just repeat that last line again. You see rather what I would call an arrogant dismissal. Notice what he says. And thinking men have long since ceased to regard the founder of Christianity as such. This historical skepticism, which I would say, you know, again, grows out of rationalism and the impact it has in terms of studying the New Testament documents, which ceased to regard Jesus as divine, characterized those who followed Strauss during the latter half of the 19th century. Um, indeed, after they, they uh, went through and looked at um, uh, the, the, the New Testament documents, such as the Gospels, after they uh, scraped the Christ of faith off the pages of, of the, the four Gospels, the image that remained for Strauss and others that, is that Jesus was an ethical teacher. The accurateness of this research on Jesus was challenged by Albert Schweitzer at the beginning of the 20th century in his well-known The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And I'd like to quote from Schweitzer. He says, The Jesus who came forward publicly as the Messiah, who reached the ethic of the kingdom, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth and died to give his work its final consecration, never had any existence. He is a figure designed by rationalism, endowed with um, life by liberalism, and clothed by modern theology in an historical garb. End of a uh, quote from Schweitzer. Although Schweitzer debunked the simplistic portrait of Jesus 
as an ethical teacher painted by uh, Schweitzer's predecessors, he pointed instead to understanding Jesus as an apocalyptic visionary who was tragically martyred, and he was even more skeptical than others about what can be known of Jesus. The complete dissembling of Jesus, of history, from the Christ of faith, however, climaxed just a few decades after Albert Schweitzer uh, with the research of Rudolf Boltmann, the famous German scholar. After applying the criteria of of authenticity to the gospel traditions, criteria that has become even more well-known in more recent decades to the Jesus Seminar, he stated, we can, and again I'm quoting Rudolf Boltmann, we can, strictly speaking, know nothing of the personality of Jesus, but this does not really matter, for it is not the historical Jesus that concerns us, but the charismatic Christ. So again, you see in uh, some of these, uh, in scholarship, this, this uh, effort to disassemble uh, any connection between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. Boltman went on to become the dominant voice in the 20th century, mid-20th century scholarship on the Gospels. He had been influenced by the work of Wilhelm Bousset early, um, earlier in the century, whose name is synonymous with the well-known Religionsgeschichtliche Schule, the history of, of religion school, uh, which is prominent in the 1920s, 30s, and forward Bousset had sought to use his vast knowledge of comparative religions to explain how Jesus came to be confessed as divine. He understood this confession as a late first century. If we have Jesus dying at 30, this uh, understanding of him as divine would not have come about until the late first century, according to Bousset, and that it resulted from the contact of Jesus' followers with the imperial cult mystery religions, and oriental religion outside of Palestine. Although Bousset died at a relatively early age, Boltman endorsed Bousset's, what I would call his flawed developmental model, and extended its life through much of the 20th century. The closing decades of the 20th century have witnessed a renewed interest in the relationship between the historical Jesus and depictions of him in the Gospels. But this interest is still characterized by uh, a strong historical skepticism. The now infamous Jesus Seminar consisted of a group of scholars who voted on the historical probability of individual sayings as well as individual actions of Jesus from individual Gospels, including the Gospel of Thomas. And that's why you have uh, one of the books they produced being called The Five Gospels. Several of these scholars have produced monographs, but none has probably captivated as much popular attention as John Dominic Crossan's The Historical Jesus, The Life of a Mediterranean Peasant. Crossan prides himself on his methodological rigor, which leads him to conclude that Jesus uh, was a poor, illiterate peasant leader who led a social movement against the established religious and political powers of his day, primarily Rome. Similar recent studies depict Jesus as a cynic teacher or an apocalyptic prophet. Uh, That would be Bart Ehrman, for example. Usually far short of one who is a divine son, although 
serious voices have been raised against such portraits. Two major paradigm shifts have occurred in the study of Jesus then over the past two centuries. First, there's been, as I mentioned before, a very conscious and sharp separation of the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. The conclusion has been drawn that the Gospels teach us much about the Christ of faith and very little about the Jesus of history. This historical skepticism is seen in the movement from historical approaches uh, in more recent years uh, to literary approaches. Matter of fact, uh, one of the things that I find uh, troubling is that um, people aren't, uh, in many circles, aren't that interested in historical study of the Gospels anymore. They're, they're interested only in them as, as uh, literary creations of an individual uh, writer, evangelist. What does he say about Jesus? Not that there's some connection between what he is saying about Jesus and who Jesus really was. Um, recent commentaries on the Gospels are no longer dominated by some of the questions that were were certainly uh, present in the first half of the 20th century, namely source criticism, form criticism, or even redaction criticism. While some celebrate this change, uh, uh, with it has also come, as I mentioned, a growing lack of engagement with the history of Jesus, as interpreters increasingly focus exclusively on the literary artistry of a narrative, of a gospel. The historical research that has survived tends to focus on the social context of the evangelists and their communities, not on the person of Jesus. Uh, One of my colleagues, David Scare, warns us that we must not ignore the history of Jesus himself. And I quote, he says, For those who have no firm confidence in the historicity of Jesus, a true Christology is impossible. End of quote. Secondly, and this is a point I mentioned uh, right in the, uh, the, the first line, what has happened in the past 200 years, the developmental model of expressions of the identity of Jesus. One can say that um, the evolutionary, sometimes called that, or developmental model for understanding Jesus has become firmly entrenched in New Testament scholars, theologians, etc., This model presents Christology as developing very gradually from an understanding of Jesus as a prophet uh, in conjunction with his death uh, and then developing over a period of decades. By the end of the first century, uh, he is being confessed as a divine being. That is the typical model of understanding uh, Jesus uh, among many New Testament scholars. So you, the other thing that you see, certainly in, in some popular literature, is that uh, even at, by the end of the first century, there really wasn't a, a, a huge uh, confession of Jesus as a divinity. Uh, some in, in popular, scholar, uh, popular circles would even say that it wasn't until the second or third century of Christianity where you have the kind of creedal statements of, the, of Nicaea in 325, uh, where Jesus is said to be of one substance with the Father, uh, etc., that you know, it's finally in, in that period where Christianity becomes a legal religion 
of the Roman Empire that you have a very exalted statement of Jesus' identity in terms of his divinity. Now, what I'd like to propose uh, is that there's been a shift back, at least among some scholars, to look at the, um, uh, the Gospels without such historical skepticism. Uh, and in, in thinking about this, I would like to just suggest to you several very helpful, what I have found to be very helpful, very balanced, uh, much more uh, historically rigorous treatments of, of, uh, of the Gospels um, in terms of actually being concerned about history, studying them as historical documents. And this renewed interest of what I would call credible historical research on Jesus, uh, some examples I have on the handout. First of all, a Swedish scholar who, when he first published his, um, his work in uh, 1961, it was called Memory and Manuscript, it was largely dismissed by the New Testament Guild. Uh, uh, Berger Gerhardsson, a Swedish scholar, uh, actually did a lot of study of oral tradition and how it was passed on in early Judaism, primarily in terms of looking at 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century um, rabbinic Jewish circles, understanding the, the concern for orality and the preservation of orality. So what he did was, he, in, in examining that material, he went back and applied uh, that material to the Gospels and talked about the importance of, unlike you know, 20th century um, uh, scholars in Europe or America, our view of orality is that we can't remember anything that was said yesterday next week. And, and we kind of carry that in. How could you have you know, these uh, Gospel writers remembering the teaching of Jesus and recording it 20, you know, 30, 40, 50, maybe 60 years later. One of the things that he stressed in memory and manuscript is the important uh, rabbi-disciple relationship, certainly that you see uh, exhibited or testified to in the Gospels, but certainly in 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century uh, Judaism, where there was such a stress on the followers uh, learning not only the life of the, um, of the rabbi that uh, they were following, but also memorizing the teaching. That oral teaching was ingrained, memorized, uh, learned. And in the ancient world, this is not at all surprising. You did not have um, uh, as much written, you know, as many written manuscripts. Uh, people uh, knew Homer uh, by memory. Uh, they, they, they impressed uh, these things on, on their mind through repetition. And one of the things that um, he stressed in, in memory and manuscript was the fact that you don't have gospel writers uh, sitting down decades later and trying to remember oral traditions, but rather they're repeated, repeated, repeated. And so when they're finally recorded, it's not a matter of having to recollect what was said 20 or 30 years ago, but recollect what they recounted last week and what they've recounted um, 
year after year in terms of preserving uh, the oral teaching of an important teacher. Now, more recently, it's interesting, just uh, four decades later, at, uh, at kind of the end of his career, he published a book called The Reliability of the Gospel Tradition, where uh, he kind of went back and revisited his earlier work and reflected upon it in light of more recent study on orality. One of his students, uh, Samuel uh, Bierskog, uh, again, another Swedish scholar, has written a book quite recently. This uh, comes out of his uh, um, research under Gerhardsen. Uh, it's entitled Story as History and History as Story, the Gospel Tradition in the, in, of Ancient Oral History. One of the things that uh, Bierskog has emphasized is that there is a tendency in, 20, in, in 19th and 20th century studies of the Gospels to use like a folklore oral tradition model for understanding these traditions of Jesus. Namely, the understanding of things being passed on generation after generation. We, you know, if we use a folklore tradition, uh, but usually it's folklore is understood in terms of centuries of time. Uh, and the oral traditions are passed on over centuries. One of the things that Bierskog emphasized is that rather than talking about oral tradition, and especially using a folklore approach to understanding this being passed on century after century, we should take an approach of understanding that, and he looks at some Greek historians especially, from uh, the, uh, the centuries preceding the time of, of Jesus as well as, as well as subsequent. And he shows uh, and emphasizes the model of oral history rather than oral tradition, and especially oral tradition understood from a folklore approach. What Bierskog uh, emphasizes in this book is that if we, uh, if we look at uh, some of these historians, there is typically a concern to preserve oral history from eyewitnesses, namely, if you want to preserve a a history of an important event or important people, you try to do it within the decades where there are still eyewitnesses. Now, how does this help us in terms of, you know, in, in, in talking about the Gospels? What he basically argues is that one of the reasons why you have a concern for the writing down of the traditions of Jesus is because you have the oral history um, uh, being recounted or being actually committed to in written form while there still are oral um, uh, eyewitnesses who can confirm some of the traditions uh, of history that are being uh, recorded in those documents that are being written. And so uh, there's a lot of interesting um, things that he asserts, Bierskog, in terms, of, um, in terms of viewing the Gospels as uh, oral history that are connected to eyewitnesses. And when you think about the, the writing of the Gospels, uh, depending upon how you date, they certainly, one can say, 
are within that time frame of just a few decades after Jesus' ministry and death. Certainly within that time frame where you would um, be concerned because there are not as many witnesses that are still living. So if you want to write a history, you do it while there still are witnesses that can be, who, who can have some influence in terms of recording those, those traditions. Uh, Richard Balcom, more recently, and a very uh, capable, uh, taught at St. Andrews, uh, University of St. Andrews in, in, in England for many years, uh, also a friend of mine, uh, has written um, three volumes, and one kind of picks up on Beerskog's uh, proposal, but takes it further. I brought along the volume... Um, Tonight, it's called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony. Does some fascinating things. And again, I would argue that uh, uh, Richard Balcom uh, is uh, concerned uh, for doing history well when we, when we uh, get into the Gospels. And so he, he does things like looks at all of the, the, the interest in, in recording names in the Gospels. Why do you have names that, that are so prominent? Why do you have so much in terms of uh, narrative, not just to focus on the sayings of Jesus? Uh, he does a, a lot of uh, work in this book in terms of, of arguing that the Gospels um, are written at a time where you still have witnesses to this tradition and and they are concerned about having some accuracy in terms of what Jesus said, what Jesus did, and there would be eyewitnesses who certainly, if, if, if the gospel traditions, once they were written down, uh, were not, didn't have a congruence with what was being um, said or what had been experienced by those eyewitnesses. So I think a very valuable contribution one that, again, emphasizes that we have not just oral tradition passed on in terms of this folklore tradition that tended to characterize um, how New Testament scholars approached the New Testament, but rather uh, approaching it from the understanding of oral history that is recorded within the generation where there still are witnesses to um, these events or to... uh, to uh, these sayings. Uh, the, uh, the fourth person I mentioned on the outline in terms of Richard Balcom, I would also mention uh, these other two books, very, very helpful, very valuable uh, in terms of uh, early Jesus research, The Testimony of the Beloved Disciple, specifically essays related to the Gospel of John. It's interesting that in, in New Testament circles, Uh, often uh, the Gospel of John is seen as the least historical of the Gospels. Uh, And yet, uh, in more recent years, there's been um, uh, interest among New Testament scholars in how John, not just the synoptics, uh, present a lot of history. You know, for for, um, uh, Balcom in his volume is one uh, that, that certainly asserts that. And you even have archaeological things like for, for years the Pool of Siloam mentioned in John 10 was kind of uh, seen as something that uh, uh, they didn't know where it was or even if it was an actual historical site. And lo and below, uh, uh, 
lo and behold, uh, uh, not that many years ago, uh, as they were digging in, in um, the, uh, the under some, some of the Jerusalem streets, they come across the Pool of Siloam that's mentioned in, uh, in John chapter 10. Uh, the, the other scholar that uh, I have listed here, Larry Hurtado, has done some uh, very valuable work, I would argue, in terms of undercutting what I mentioned earlier, uh, Wilhelm Busset's basic uh, emphasis that you do not have the confession of Jesus as, as God, as divine, as, uh, until the late first century uh, by um, Christians who were part of the wider Greco-Roman you know, world, not Jews. Uh, that was the basic position of Busset. That certainly impacted then Boltman. That impacted a lot of New Testament scholarship. The understanding then was, well, you have a, a plurality of gods in the wider Greco-Roman world. So these people, not Jews, but rather uh, Greeks, um, uh, or Romans from the wider Greco-Roman world, these people would be more, as the, the Christian mission went forward, be, would be more open because they believed in the plurality of gods to confess Jesus as God. One of the things that, um, that uh, Hurtado has emphasized, very helpfully so, is a dismantling of Bousset's basic um, uh, thesis in, in, in his work on, on uh, the confession of Christ as curious, is that Christ was confessed as divine among Jews, and it was in these very earliest years of Christianity. So by the time you have uh, the earliest New Testament documents, which we would say at least would be uh, uh, most assuredly the epistles of Paul are written in the early 50s, First and Second Thessalonians, for example. Already before that, among Jews, you have a very strong worship of Jesus going on, confession of Jesus' divine identity. This is not something that, that uh, uh, took uh, decades upon decades to develop. Uh, it wasn't a, a late first century phenomenon and certainly didn't take till, uh, as the Da Vinci Code would assert, till, uh, till uh, Nicaea when you know, they finally put uh, things uh, uh, together to, uh, to say you know, uh, the, the divine identity of Jesus is then finally clearly confessed. Um, and he's written two books, both of which I would commend I brought one along uh, tonight, uh, kind of a provocative title, uh, How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God? Historical questions about the, about the earliest devotion to Jesus. Uh, his larger book, uh, which was written just prior to this one, um, actually one of the, uh, the chapters of this book, Mark, was uh, uh, a lecture given at Fort Wayne uh, at our seminary. But uh, in um, Lord Jesus Christ uh, is his larger volume. The thesis of both of these works uh, is that we, we need to um, look at the, the worship of Jesus as an important um, testimony to how he was being understood. One of the things that uh, Hurtado has emphasized, as well as uh, others, uh, Balcom, 
is the importance of not the, the first century, in the sense of from 30 to 100, but the importance of the years immediately following the death and the testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. So before you have the first documents, you have a lot of um, worship of Jesus going on, and that the first documents that are written already testify to a very exalted um, understanding of Jesus. Now, to give you uh, some sense of that, uh, a German scholar, Martin Hingle, also a, a fine historian, I think has uh, um, uh, summarized this pretty well. Uh, just to, to comment briefly uh, in introducing this quote, I would say that historical research has identified the earliest exist extant te- evidence for the identification of Jesus with the one God of Israel. This was not a development, again, just to re- re- uh, reassert this point, not a development that occurred over the first few centuries or even over the course of the first century. Certainly there was growing articulation of Jesus' identity over the course of the first century. But the, just the, under, the identification of Jesus with the God of Israel was done, uh, made certainly before, uh, I would argue, the evidence points us to the earthly ministry of Jesus and to the two decades that followed, namely uh, between 30 and 50 Despite the divergent dating of New Testament documents, we can be certain that the first ones were written no later than the early 50s. They contain evidence that Jesus was worshipped, which was very significant evidence in terms of how he was being identified by fellow Jews, Jewish Christians, obviously. Such worship, moreover, must predate the documents themselves. (laughs) Namely, these um, uh, these understandings of Jesus were not created when Paul wrote an epistle. He's reflecting what he was already, you know, believing, teaching, uh, certainly for years prior to the first time he records some of this in, in his epistles. In light of this, consider this provocative assertion by Martin Hengel, again, the scholar I mentioned, uh, a New Testament scholar just recently passed away. He uh, taught many years at the University of Tübingen. Um, he says, one is tempted to say that more happened in this period, namely from 30 to 50, uh, of less than two decades, than in the whole of the next seven centuries, up to the time when the doctrine of the early church was completed in terms of its articulation uh, in various councils. Indeed, and again, I'm quoting from Hengel, one might even ask whether the formation of doctrine in the early church was essentially more than a consistent development and completion of what had already been unfolded in the primal event of the first two decades, but in the language and thought forms of Greek, which was its necessary setting, namely, as uh, uh, as the church uh, later confessed things that had already been unfolded in those first two decades uh, of, of the earliest Christianity. Hingle's statement stands against the sea of scholarship that has eroded this understanding. And, and really, though, historians must deal with the evidence that Jesus was worshipped 
as Lord by Jews already in the very earliest years of Christianity, not only by Gentiles or the wider Roman world in the final decade of the first century. Now, to to, uh, go to this formative period, one of the things that uh, I think a lot of us have have come to um, become familiar with is the popularity of using various text beyond, uh, for example, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, for understanding uh, the person of Jesus, most popularly the Gospel of Thomas, but now, uh, one might say, various, um, uh, often what's characterized as Gnostic Gospels, or even sometimes called Apocryphal Gospels, Gospel of Nicodemus uh, and, and others, and it's, it's interesting, in terms of being a good historian, uh, I would argue that uh, it is in... First of all, let me say, I went to the University of Michigan, so uh, I actually studied under a, uh, a scholar who is, uh, who is a, um, a prominent scholar in Gnosticism, Jarl Fossum. Uh, Jarl St- uh, Fossum has studied under Giles Quispel, who actually translated the Gospel of Thomas after it was found. And uh, uh, Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, financed that project because Carl Jung was very interested in in Gnosticism as a psychologist. And uh, 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 so Carl Jung and Giles Quispel were were very good friends. But uh, in in Michigan, you know, certainly uh, we, uh, we spent time in Nag Hammadi, in the Nag Hammadi Library, um, learning Coptic, studying the, uh, the the Gnostic Gospels. One of the things I would I want want to make sure you hear me. The the Gnostic material is very important for the historical study of early Christianity. Why? Because you understand what some groups were were thinking about Jesus and about salvation in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century. Uh, The question that comes up is, how valuable is that for understanding the Jesus who lived in the 1st century? And there I would say, most of the material is not very valuable in terms of understanding the Jesus of history, the the Jesus that, uh, that lived... Uh, and, and ministered in um, in the the, um, the land of Galilee and Judea uh, in the, the early part of the first century. That material helps you understand second, third, fourth century groups, sectarian groups, and how they view Jesus. It's not that you can't ever sometimes see some things that were passed on from first century Christianity and picked up uh, in in some Gnostic groups. Uh, For example, the Gospel of Thomas is one of the more interesting um, uh, Gospels for the study of of, uh, Gospel traditions because there is some overlap between what you find in, um, in the canonical, quote, canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
There are some sayings of Jesus that you see also uh, uh, in a very similar form in Thomas, which certainly means that there was reflecting on specific sayings of Jesus that, uh, that come from those Gospels picked up by, um, by uh, uh, Gnostic Christians and then incorporated into a text like Thomas. Um, but in terms of saying these should have priority or even be used kind of alongside, when you, when you think about the dating of these texts and you think about the ideology of these texts, you know, it's just not good history to say that, that somehow they preserve what, we, um, what uh, we can know about the first century Jesus. What they preserve is what some groups were thinking about Jesus um, and, and uh, some of the ideology that they were teaching in the second, third, and fourth century. And again, also, uh, I would argue there's been good research on Bauer's hypothesis which was just so widely accepted in the 20th century. Bauer's hypothesis was this, Walter Bauer, is that uh, Orthodox Christianity suppressed these groups that actually um, were much more widespread. So we should, we should actually give much more value to some of these you know, sectarian um, uh, texts or groups in terms of somehow... Um, uh, presenting historical material. Uh, yes, uh, they are important in terms of understanding the picture of 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century Christianity. But in terms of understanding the, the Jesus, uh, uh, I would say uh, no. And one of the interesting things, just you know, pick up the Gospel of Thomas sometime and read it. What is the major difference that you see between a gospel like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and something like Thomas. Thomas is a series of logians, namely sayings of Jesus. There isn't an interest in what Jesus did. There isn't a narrative about his life. One of the contrasts I would like to say in terms of reasserting the... the, um, Yeah, um, actually very contemporary with, um, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, only because of the prominence of the Dead Sea Scrolls, you didn't hear as much as not, about Nag Hammadi. So in the late 40s, uh, about, this, about a very contemporary time with... Uh, and you have their publication primarily in the, um, uh, the 60s and 70s. You know, that's, that's when the, the codices were really... Uh, began to be published, yeah. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay a couple of bills, and we will be right back. Very interesting stuff, though. Uh, why? Because <laughs> he's just systematically, scholarly, picking apart the major assumptions of uh, liberalism and basically saying, yeah, it ain't true. And when you really think about what evidence we have, we can trust the gospel accounts of Jesus Christ to give us an accurate historical picture of Jesus and all those fanciful uh, liberal uh, hypotheses. Well, they're about as real as evolution. We'll be right back. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, 
You can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm, you're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Uh, Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. back 
warning. It's the liberal hypotheses regarding the historic Jesus that are the actual mythology, not what the Gospels record. That's the actual historical stuff. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue bringing this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Or you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and uh, send that along to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, here is the balance of the lecture on the early evidence for the historic Jesus by Dr. Charles Gieschen from uh, Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He, this is a presentation he gave at UCLA. Let's continue. Uh, but... In terms of the, um, uh, the use of the four Gospels, uh, one of the things that I, I would emphasize is the four Gospels are not as concerned, again, uh, hear me out on this, they are not primarily concerned with imparting the teaching of Jesus. Now, do they? Yes. But if you look at the Gospels, and what dominates, uh, when I say the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what dominates their content? Actually, the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, one scholar, Martin Kaler, has appropriately characterized these Gospels that we have in the New Testament as passion narratives with long introductions. Passion narratives with long introductions. That tells us a lot about the character of these Gospels. They actually, um, in a sense, have at, at, um, at their, um, their purpose is to retell the, the, the death and testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. So when you look at, um, for example, uh, the Gospel of John, you have 12 chapters leading up to uh, the last week of Jesus' life, and after that, uh, nine chapters <laughs> about, about his last week and uh, his, uh, his uh, resurrection. So, you know, in terms of what dominates the content of that gospel, you, you, get, you get the picture. And when you think about that, uh, you also see a strong focus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on not just the teaching of Jesus. Certainly there's a record of parables, there's a record of certain sermons and and certain interactions with individuals, but a focus on what Jesus did, and especially, of all things, being crucified. It's very interesting, uh, just from a historical perspective, if you wanted to uh, put forward someone as a deity in the ancient world to preach that deity to fellow Jews as well as to the wider Roman world of all things to put as the centerpiece for what you're going to to preach and teach, the death of Jesus. Not just a death, but a crucifixion. Uh, I mean, uh, 
that would be what typically an embarrassment in terms of a deity who was crucified as a you know given a criminal's death and yet you know in terms of the content of the gospels not only do you have the passion narrative dominating the gospels but a lot of the teaching that you find earlier before the passion narrative in each of the gospels is really Jesus teaching about his own approaching death you know, uh, certainly he teaches about uh, um, the wider uh, uh, bringing the reign of God. But a lot of that talk is the understanding that the, the, the reign of God, the kingdom of God, is going to be brought through his suffering, his death, and then uh, his coming alive again, his resurrection. So, you know, I think a very important distinction in terms of uh, viewing uh, and presenting Jesus uh, and, and in terms of viewing Jesus as, uh, in terms of presenting history, the concern with actually presenting something from Jesus' life, especially testimony to his death, uh, as well as you know, uh, leading up to his uh, earthly ministry. So there's some movement in terms of in, in the historic, in uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's concern about telling something in terms of his followers, there's names of his followers, there's places where he went, where he did certain things are mentioned. It's not just a collection of wisdom sayings. Uh, finally, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would stress, you know, uh, the understanding of, of, of Jesus isn't so much in terms of being saved by any kind of knowledge, but being saved by what he did, what action he took, and uh, thus the focus on his passion. The other thing, you know, that I would stress in terms of of uh, understanding the historical person of Jesus is that that we have Paul, and Paul's earliest testimony is within two decades of of Jesus. So he's basically writing things in his epistles uh, within a very short period. And remember, Paul actually began his ministry uh, in terms of uh, going through a conversion. Uh, and beginning his proclamation of, of Jesus within a few years after Jesus' death and testimony to Jesus' resurrection. Uh, I think this is very important. And what does he focus on? He actually doesn't focus on all sorts of teachings of Jesus. Uh, over and over again in, in uh, Paul's epistles, he has uh, almost a bit of a, a narrative that, that focuses on Jesus' death and resurrection. That's the part of Jesus' life that he is stressing. Um, you know, very much like you have in, in terms of the, the focus of the four Gospels, the significance of Jesus is understood especially in his life, um, in, 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 um, in his crucifixion and the testimony to his, his resurrection. One of the things that, uh, if you, some examples of this, and I think... Uh, Again, as I stressed with um, the, the formative period here is the, the period between 30 and 50. We understand the conversion of St. Paul, uh, of, of the Apostle Paul, within just a few years after the death of Jesus and his resurrection. Uh, you have then Paul beginning to, to uh, testify to the identity of Jesus within a few years, so the testimony 
that he's writing down is not something that's just you know, 20 years later. It's actually a result of, of material that he has been testifying to orally since within a, a few years of Jesus' life and, and death. Uh, notice the text that I quote here. It's one of the most, um, one might say, uh, overt statements of Paul in all of his epistles about the origin of what he was preaching. This is in his epistle to uh, his first epistle to the Corinthians. He writes, "For I delivered to you as of first importance." One could translate that paradidomi, uh, the verb there, as I handed over to you. Okay, it's a it's a um, a verb that is actually speaking about the, the, the passing on of tradition. He says, so I delivered to you, or I handed over to you, as of first importance, what I also received. So Paul's basically emphasizing, you know, what I'm proclaiming here isn't history that I've, um, that I've created. <laughs> uh, Certainly, over my, the, the course of my 20 years of preaching before, or, or 30 years uh, before I've, uh, I've written this epistle to you, he says, uh, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died in behalf of our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. I think that uh, this text is a, a very uh, interesting one in the emphasis on the fact that, that he has received this tradition, this stress on the significance of Jesus' death, the testimony to, to Jesus' uh, resurrection from others, and uh, so he's now faith, faithfully seeking to pass it on. Uh, and also, if you look at that... Uh, as a Jew, uh, you notice that he isn't stressing Jesus' death as a, just a martyrdom, an interesting testimony to a man who believed in what he taught. He says, um, I've passed on to you what I also received, that Jesus, that Christ died in behalf of our sins. I think this testimony is uh, very interesting and one that uh, certainly didn't just develop over decades so that finally when you get to the Gospel of uh, Matthew or Mark or Luke that all of a sudden, oh boy, you know, Jesus' death was more than just a martyrdom. It actually was a death that atoned for sins. Uh, but it testifies from, from the very earliest Christianity that people believed that Jesus was more than a man who died for what he believed in. Because certainly, uh, as anyone who was uh, crucified uh, would be uh, in, in, uh, a martyrdom, but you couldn't have somebody actually atoning for sins. Paul even says this in one of his other epistles, Romans, uh, you know, how can uh, one man die on behalf of, other, of, of another? Um, he understands Jesus, um, and obviously he's taking this testimony from some of the earliest followers of Jesus, 
because he says, what I received, I've handed down to you, that, that, that Jesus' death was an actual atonement for sins. Jesus was understood as more than a man. He was just a man dying. That's a martyrdom. Um, you need someone who is uh, more than a man. And so this understanding of both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus is exhibited, is testified to by Paul. And not just in you know, 58 when he's writing this letter, but he's saying what I received, namely uh, early in my ministry, I'm passing on to you. So uh, I think it's a very significant text that uh, testifies in terms of, of uh, a very early tradition, uh, in terms of, of testimony to Jesus' life, the significance of his death, and the significance of his death as much more than a, a martyrdom of a human, but the understanding of, of a God-man, the understanding of a divine being who is also fully human, dying and doing something about uh, sin, about uh, uh, the, the predicament that sin causes in the world. Another thing that you see in Paul, uh, and we could spend a lot of time on this, is the early confession of Jesus as Lord. Remember what I said about how uh, New Testament scholarship, beginning especially with Bousset, emphasized the understanding of a plurality of lords. You know, even the emperor was a curios. So there were curioi, multiple lords in the uh, Roman world. And so the understanding of speaking of Jesus as Lord doesn't seem all that important. We have to think, and and, uh, one of the things I would uh, argue, we have to read Paul as a first century Jew. Paul understood uh, that uh, the most prominent um, way in which the divine name, the tetragrammaton in the Old Testament, uh, is translated in the the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is with the title Curios. To confess Jesus as Lord, which is the earliest Christian confession that that we have, kind of the the simple, short creed, if you will, of early Christianity, is to say that he is none other than within the mystery of the one God of Israel. He's not just an agent of the God of Israel. He's not just um, the the idea of... um, of, uh, Um, someone who represents the one God of Israel, but he's actually the visible manifestation of the one God of Israel, to confess him as Lord. And uh, again, I think it's very important. You have Jews confessing this long before Christianity moves in in terms of the wider Greco-Roman world. Uh, Jews uh, worshiping Jesus. For example... So often, I, this is just one, and we could, we could uh, do many, you have in the beginning of Paul's letters, uh, as a Jewish Christian, he typically uh, uses this phrase, uh, God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Usually, grace to you, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, uh, the two titles... Uh, or actually, the personal name of, of God in the Old Testament, the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name of, of God, uh, which is usually in English translations rendered Lord, 
because the, uh, the Hebrew uh, name of God is usually not pronounced by uh, pious Jews. Uh, but you have the, uh, the, uh, the title Elohim used with the divine name. So it's translated in the, in the Septuagint as Lord God, Kyrios Theos. So Paul simply takes that title for the one God of Israel and speaks of God, our Father, and our Lord, Jesus Christ. It's a way in which he is expressing as a Jew the oneness of God, and yet a distinction in terms of God's visible presence through the Son, Jesus Christ, who is confessed as Lord, and the understanding of the Father who is not seen, who he, he refers to with the title God. Sometimes people say, well, why isn't Jesus confessed as God by Paul? And I would say, <laughs> look at the title Lord. <laughs> That's actually a representation, uh, a, 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 the title that, that is used um, to, um, to, uh, in the Septuagint to transliterate the divine name, if you will, as a substitute for the divine name. Uh, for Paul to confess Jesus as Lord is an extreme statement of his understanding of his divinity. Actually, the divine name uh, is, is the most significant for, for, uh, for um, uh, Jews. It's the most significant word in the Old Testament. So to confess Jesus as, the old, as Lord uh, is a huge uh, statement in terms of his identity. And again, it's not something that's happening at the end of the first century. It's something that's, that's happening in the, the very earliest years, of, uh, the formative years of early Christianity, from 30 to 50. By the time Paul's writing this in the beginning of his epistles, this is being you know, uh, uh, confessed and used in the worship life of early Christians um, for, for, uh, for two decades, one would say. Uh, next point, just to make, uh, you have pre-Christian and early Christian interest in, in uh, Jesus as the possessor of the divine name. Now, uh, I actually, this is one area that I'm extremely interested in because what has happened um, is, you know, uh, we aren't first century Jews, so we don't read these texts like first century Jews. Uh, and the tendency is, especially, you know, I'm uh, a... Uh, I happen to be a, a Lutheran pastor, so I'm a Christian. I, but it's not part of our mindset to think about the significance of the Hebrew personal name of God and its impact on, on, on earliest Christianity. But you have testimony in the New Testament about the significance of a special name that Jesus has. And actually even into the 2nd and 3rd century in some Gnostic documents. It's one example where you do have some of these Jewish traditions testified to in, uh, in, in other parts of, uh, uh, in other groups. Uh, and the interest is the fact that, that uh, this special name, the Tetragrammaton of the Father, is one that is applied to Jesus. Uh, notice uh, the baptismal formula, and while one could say, okay, when was Matthew written? Even if we would say it was you know, 60s or 70s, um, many New Testament scholars would, be, would say 70s, the baptismal formula 
was in use many years before Matthew wrote it down. Matter of fact, uh, as a, you know, somebody who's served in a congregation, one thing that you don't do uh, in the Christian church sometimes is change the wording of key things people are used to hearing. Uh, you can change certain things, but don't change the 23rd Psalm in, in terms of the King James translation. Some people are very used to it. Or, you know, don't change the wording of the Lord's Prayer. You know, people will, will get upset. And the, the baptismal formula that is recorded at the end of, of the Gospel of Matthew is an example of a liturgical text that, that uh, the evangelist records in, in Matthew 28, 19, that no doubt was in use. For example, I'll just you know, give you a, a historical proposition. If you were an early Christian living before uh, the Gospel of Matthew was written, you had been baptized and you had had a formula that uh, was not at all reflective of the one that is from the, the lips of Jesus as Matthew, or as the Gospel of Matthew records it, all of a sudden there would be a huge question. You know, why are we using this other formula? I would argue that uh, uh, that's an example of a liturgical formula that had been used, obviously, because of uh, the oral testimony to it. And so when Matthew's Gospel finally records it, if it wasn't in line with what was already in use of the church, the church would say, there would be a Christian say, what in the world is that formula doing at the end of the gospel? You know, and, and it is an amazing statement because it says baptized in the name, singular name that is shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Most of us just think of that as some kind of early Trinitarian formula. I think of it as a first century Jew. What I'm amazed at is you have a singular name that's shared by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that singular name, if I'm a Jew, I say, what is the name of the God of Israel? Yeah, and that's the Tetragrammaton. And so this was a way of, in a sense, invoking the unique name of the one God of Israel whom early Christians testified to had been revealed in the Son, who would, who would also reveal the complexity of that one God of Israel as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And obviously you have some testimony of that uh, already in the Hebrew Scriptures. There's a complexity to the one God of Israel uh, that's testified uh, to in, in, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Third, uh, the next, uh, oh, uh, another point, uh, just, and I've written an article on this. It's actually, uh, I am planning to, to, to widen that article into a book, but uh, the use of the, the divine name or references to the, the divine name being applied to Jesus uh, is prominent. Uh, just to give you one example, uh, but to all who believed in, this is from John 1.12, who believe in his name, he gives power to become children. Now, what does it mean that people believed in the name that, was, that belonged to Jesus? They believed in his name. Usually we think of believing in the person, don't we? 
But in the Gospel of John, several places, you have an emphasis that they believed in his name. Well, as you look, Jesus, uh, the testimony of Jesus that you find in the Gospel of John is that he shares the Father's name. The Father's name would be the unique name of, of God in the Hebrew Bible, the, the Old Testament. It's the Tetragrammaton. Uh, so uh, this is not any reference to they believed in the personal name, namely Jesus, but they believed that Jesus was Lord. They believed that he was um, the one God uh, of, of Israel, that he was the visible manifestation of the one God of Israel. So, And there's uh, much more testimony in, in, in early uh, uh, Christianity uh, to this, and certainly even uh, there's an interest in, in, uh, in some Gnostic literature. I would argue that's one of the reasons why in, in the second and third century there's not as much testimony to, uh, to this, this phenomenon because, um, one, early Christians kind of lost as they moved more into the Gentile context and mission uh, you, you have people losing the sense of the significance of the Hebrew uh, divine name. And then secondly, you do have interest within some Gnostic circles of Christianity as the, in the secret name, uh, the four-letter uh, name of God that is uh, so prominent in the Old Testament and that is not pronounced. It's... Uh, Thirdly, another very interesting um, uh, phenomenon in early Christian texts is you have the application of texts in the Old Testament that where where, um, you have the Lord, uh, the Lord God of Israel, saying, for example, in in Psalm 45, every knee shall bow to me. And then early Christians, like Paul, uh, saying, echoing those texts, like in in, in Philippians 2, every knee will bow to Jesus and confess that Jesus is curious. And there, at the name of Jesus, I would again argue, the name that is above all other names is not the personal name Jesus. Paul was a first century Jew. He understood that the most unique name that is above all names is the name of the one God of Israel the Tetragrammaton, the um, uh, four-letter Hebrew name, uh, and that that was the unique name that that Jesus shares. So it shows this very elevated uh, understanding of Jesus at a very early period. Namely, you know, the the epistle of the Philippians and certainly Paul. If you have recorded tradition, you know that 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 tradition existed before it was actually recorded. Um, you, uh, you have also the early worship of Jesus by Jews. Uh, I mentioned uh, the book by, um, by uh, Hurtado. Just a, a brief quote from Hurtado's book here. Um, he mentions, and again, this is Larry Hurtado, he states, Moreover, devotion to Jesus erupted suddenly and quickly, not gradually and late, among first century circle of followers, More specifically, the origins lie in Jewish circles of the earliest years. Only a certain wishful thinking continues to attribute the reverence of Jesus as as divine decisively to the influence of pagan religion and the, the influx of Gentile converts, characterizing it as developing late and incrementally. 
Furthermore, devotion to Jesus as Lord, to whom cultic reverence and total obedience were the appropriate response, was widespread, not confined or attributable to particular circles such as Hellenist or Gentile Christians of a supposed Syrian Christ cult. And that, again, was his critique of this very prominent German scholar, Bousset, whom Rudolf Boltmann actually took his research and furthered. Uh, Just an example in the New Testament, uh, I mean, in in, in Matthew's Gospel. And again, uh, you look at this in the context of, although the tradition is recorded later, you know that by the time the author of Matthew records this, the tradition existed before that. Namely, he wouldn't, by, by mentioning the worship of Jesus, he wasn't creating future worship of Jesus. He's reflecting the fact that people are already worshiping Jesus. Notice in the early part of the Gospel of Matthew, it happens to be in the temptation narrative, there's this testimony that uh, the, the Jesus tradition, what, what uh, Jesus quotes there, he says to, uh, in this interaction between Satan and Jesus, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So you have within the Gospel of Matthew this emphasis that worship can only be given to the Lord God. And then what do you have? Several places in the Gospel of Matthew, you have testimony to the worship of Jesus going on. And obviously, uh, even though you might, we, we date the gospel a few decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, you still have the fact that that worship predates the actual document and testifies to the fact that, that uh, and a good example of, of uh, the same verb is used, proskuneo, in the resurrection narrative, you have the women, they came, they took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. And if you think it's just a testimony to, to viewing Jesus as, um, as an, uh, um, an important figure, you have to realize elsewhere in the gospel, uh, the fact that this is a, the worship of a de- deity is testified to in, in this temptation narrative. One last statement, I would, uh, uh, one last comment, and then we'll open up for questions, is... Um, uh, it's interesting that for many years in New Testament scholarship, the title, the Son of Man, was one that um, uh, people uh, have not understood, in spite of the fact that we have a lot of Jewish testimony, both from uh, Daniel 7.13, as well as from Jewish sources in the Second Temple period. First Enoch would be an example of a Second Temple text, pre-Christian those chapters that I just mentioned there, 37 to 71, actually probably are early first century, so they're, they're before the time of Jesus. They testify to how important Daniel was for Jewish expectations, Daniel 7, the coming of the Son of Man. So when Jesus uses this statement, it's not just sort of a circumlocution, I'm speaking in the third person as a, offspring of a human being. But rather, this is an elevated uh, title. In First Enoch, it actually um, testifies that, that there were Jews who understood the Son of Man as a pre-existent being 
uh, and, and uh, in a sense, a very exalted interpretation of, of what Daniel was presenting when Daniel gives testimony of uh, the, the, the ancient of days and then the one like a son of man coming and the son, one like a son of man is enthroned and he's given eternal dominion. So when Jesus, uh, and again, even, histor- even uh, uh, the most radical historic critics say Jesus used the title son of man. It's never used as a confessional title in second or third century Christianity. Uh, it, so it's, it's certainly something that, that uh, even a radical, skeptical New Testament scholar would say Jesus used that title. But it is a title that actually is a very exalted title uh, in first century Judaism. And um, Jesus continues, uh, in, in terms of the, the tradition that we have in the Gospels, he redefines Jewish expectations based upon Daniel 7, based upon what we see in First Enoch. He emphasizes that this Son of Man is actually bringing um, the reign of God, the rule of God, through suffering, even death. The Son of Man must suffer, die, and on the third day be raised. So uh, it's, a, it's a great example in the New Testament where you have um, something even the most skeptical scholars would assert that this is something that, that, that Jesus said. But what they often don't do is understand it in its Old Testament or Hebrew Bible context and how Second Temple Jews understood that title, uh, which is really a, an exalted title for an end-time deliverer and the understanding of even that, that end-time deliverer being pre-existent prior to creation. Um, a Jewish document, First Enoch, actually testifies that, that the Son of Man shares the divine name of the one God of Israel and, and exists prior to creation with the Ancient of Days. You have at least a Benintarianism testified to in, in First Enoch. Very, very significant and, and uh, certainly you know, gives us some understanding of, of uh, early Christian use of that title. Well, I thank you for your attention, uh, and uh, I will open it up for questions. Okay, uh, Jewish theological thinking mm-hmm. does not conceive of the divine and humanity as one. Uh, yet, as you've pointed out, and I agree, the early Christians, mainly Jews, readily uh, accepted uh, Christ's divine and human. It took the church centuries at the end of the Christological controversies to come to that conclusion. So my question is, was the church at that point questioning already the historical reality of Christ? Or were they just being influenced by Greek philosophy? Oh, yeah. What you see, and and maybe just to kind of back up and say there is more of a a difference in what we see in modern um, challenges in terms of Jesus' identity with what we saw in the early centuries. If you will, although this is a bit simplistic, there were more challenges to understanding and asserting the humanity of Jesus in the early centuries, the full humanity of Jesus. Whereas in in, uh, our modern times... (laughs) It's, it's a, it's a uh, difficulty in inserting the full divinity of Christ. That's where the questions rise. You know, there aren't many people 
that are saying, well, Jesus didn't exist. He wasn't a human being. But uh, the questions come in in terms of his divinity. But in the earliest centuries, I think what you see in a lot of the, um, the uh, Christological controversies is, is uh, um, challenges in terms of understanding um, either uh, his full humanity or sometimes uh, viewing him as divine but not one with, um, with the one God of Israel, you know, kind of a divine son, Arianism and the like. Now, your question, again, um, uh, reassert uh, based upon that brief explanation. What, did you, what was your, your primary question? Well, basically, uh, the question is whether the uh, church a few centuries early, uh, a few centuries earlier, uh, was questioning whether the early church had a real grip on the uh, historical yeah. reality of Christ. Yeah. Uh, I do think that um, uh, it, it, it wasn't so much um, like by Nicaea that you, you uh, the earlier church didn't have a grip on it. I think it's you have different questions being asked as controversies rise. Um, you have more of a question uh, or a concern, for example, at Nicaea in terms of the ontology of Jesus. In the first century, um, the question of being of one substance with the Father was not a, uh, a category that was really uh, important, I think, especially in the Jewish context. Uh, they expressed the unity with, for example, they share the same name, so they are of one, one being. They are identified together. However, you know, when you get into um, uh, the, um, the, the wider Roman world, the question of ontology comes up. So in, in Nicaea, for example, the question of homoousius becomes a bigger question. Uh, the, the makeup of the son with the father, uh, the ontology question. So I, I wouldn't say that I would emphasize, as I did earlier in the lecture, uh, the divine identity of Jesus is put forward very early in these early decades. Um, and uh, the emphasis in terms of his historical life and death and resurrection, you know, that's, that's not something that's, uh, that's uh, uh, developed. You have, however, as challenges rise, you have an effort by the church, especially, for example, in Nicaea, to address those new questions, those new challenges that are, being, that are coming up. So another new ways to, um, to kind of express, in light of those challenges, the identity of Jesus. And a lot of it, too, is exactly what was the... Um, the New Testament saying about Jesus. You know, these creeds kind of tried to, uh, to uh, articulate that in a very succinct form. Hi. Hi. What do you think about the Gospel of Judas? I saw a documentary on... Yeah, uh... yeah. Uh, National Geographic. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, actually, one of, my, um, one of my fellow classmates at Michigan, April DeConnick, you can... Just go on online, and, and um, uh, she's a, a Gnostic Gospels expert, and she's written a book on, on, on 
in the Gospel of Judas that's actually challenged some of the assertions of, of um, Meyer and his team, the original publishers. One of the things, um, and I also attended, um, this was just, I think, two years ago at uh, the National Society of Biblical Literature meeting, which is just down the road here at San Diego. Uh, there was a, everyone who had written on the Gospel of Thomas was in front of the room. Uh, so already within two years, uh, there were like a 10 or 12 people who had written on the Gospel of, excuse me, Gospel of Judas. Gospel of Judas, yeah. And uh, uh, April DeConnick, uh, her book is published by Continuum. It's called The Thirteenth Disciple uh, and, and uh, the Gospel of Judas. And one of the things she asserts is that there were some significant translational problems in the, the work of the original team who was working on the manuscript. One of the things that was not done because there was an effort to sensationalize the document was to get a team of, of independent scholars looking at that. And so you would have several people checking things before you published it, before you, you know, sent this out, before you started drawing conclusions and what the text... So you, first of all, have some challenges in the translation... And this is especially in terms of viewing Judas as a um, as almost a, you know a redemptive figure, uh, very positive light. You probably heard some of that in, in terms of National Geographic. That is simply a a, a, a translational problem of the in the Coptic how how they how some of the team translated. They wanted they saw some of the evidence that really wasn't there. Again, you're dealing with a very challenge text because of its condition. And uh, um, since this time, there's been some revisions even to the original translation. What I would assert, just in terms of kind of getting to your question, is the Gospel of Judas is a very helpful document in understanding uh, 3rd and 4th century Christian Gnostic groups. Yeah. and uh, But not for giving us actual testimony to what Jesus did and taught. Matter of fact, the one thing that the Gospel of Judas attacks is any understanding of Jesus' death as atoning for sins. You know, that is one of the, one of the things it's written against. You know, it's, it's uh, the, the whole aspect of Jesus' death and the understanding of Jesus' death as an atonement for sin, that's uh, what it's written against. And um, so... Um, uh, it's, it is important in terms of an historical document, but for understanding 3rd and 4th century Gnostic, you know. Because teaching. it was written then, or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a manuscript that probably date, uh, dates from that period and certainly um, may reflect, uh, I think they, they, uh, most of them date it to the, to, um, Traditions not earlier than the um, than the th- early part of the third century. You know, Gnostic Gnosticism in, in terms of the early part of the the third century. Yeah. But you can uh, again, April DeConnick, I would say, is one of one of the scholars I would trust in terms of of that particular document. But it is interesting how people have kind of hit that publicity button. You know, in terms of uh, here we have some new 
things to understand about Judas. Well, to understand how Judas was, was understood by some third century Gnostics, not in terms of the actual historical person, in terms of the inner circle of Jesus. That's what I would emphasize. You know, so it really does help our, our, uh, our research in, in, in some um, Christian sects, like a Gnostic sect. It does not help our research for first century you know, followers of Jesus or for Jesus teaching himself. Um, so is this why the four apostles were chosen? Because these texts were written uh, basically within the 50, like you said, the first century? Well, you know, I, I would say that uh, it wasn't so much that, um, that they were chosen that way. Uh, and, and I'm going to kind of back into your question already. It's not that you have the church in the second or third or fourth century saying, we want these four, we have 20, and we're going to pick yeah, these four. Yeah, that's what was stated yeah, in the yeah. exact too often, Too often, we almost have this mindset that the church decided later which of the many Gospels they would use. Uh, I think historically, a, a better understanding uh, is that you, you have a few Gospels written in the life period of some of the eyewitnesses. So these are Gospels that are written in, in the, uh, the uh, mid to late first century. Certainly, you have uh, even um, radical critics usually would say uh, John was written no later than, than the early 90s. Okay. So you have these Gospels written in that time period. And that in Justin Martyr, you already have testimony to the four memoirs of the Gospels, uh, excuse me, four memoirs of Jesus being read in early Christian services. So it, it wasn't um, that in the late second or third century Christians decided, okay, you know, we're going to use these four and not, you know, these others, but rather these came into um, fairly significant use already in the early first, second century uh, in terms of public reading of them in worship services. And then as more Gospels were produced by different sects in the late, from mid-second to especially the third century, then they had to start saying. I mean, then you have some question of, of um, what we call canon. Which ones are authoritative for the church? Because there's others that are claiming some authority. Uh, and that's when the church steps forward and says these four and not the others. Uh, but it wasn't because there were a lot of them and they said, now we'll just zero in on these four. It's because those four had been in use and were very closely connected, obviously, to this early period of Christianity, the historical witness, uh, what I would call you know, the oral history tradition, as we talked about earlier. And, uh, and so what you have in the canon process is simply 
an acknowledgement of what had been used in much of the church or much of the Christian communities uh, for, for, you know, since the, the, um, the latter part of the first century and through the second century. But, uh, you know, the, the, the canonical process largely arose not because the church needed to decide what was authoritative, but because of other documents rising up. And, and, and so the confusion started to exist as we have these multiple Gospels. You know, which ones are authoritative? And uh, um, so the church, a lot of, I mean, uh, you have councils then. I mean, Athanasius is known for, for stating these are the ones that have been regarded in terms of uh, authoritative. And, and there, you know, uh, it's a clear statement of what had been in use in the church from the late first century forward, the four as, as Justin Martyr says in, in the early part of the, the second century, the four memoirs of Jesus, which is a reference to the four Gospels. Yeah. I have a question. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> at the, I, if I'm pronouncing it right, the Council of Jabma, where the rabbis got together, the Masoretes, and so, correct me if I'm wrong, they, they decided because of Christianity's development as a heresy within the Jewish tradition, they said, well, we better get our act together and canonize our scriptures before these goyim screw up our tradition. Yeah. And so basically, you can, you can almost thank the early Catholic Church, Eastern Western Church, for creating normative Judaism in a sense. Yeah. So there is this weird relationship, this... Yeah. Between the Jews and the Christians, right? I, they I, hate each other, but they need each other. No, I, yeah. I would say uh, again, there's a lot of questions exactly in terms of Jamnia and, and the origins of, of that. But I would say this: uh, the event that really prompted this, the kind of um, codification that you have in the Mishnah in terms of rabbinic Judaism, was not so much Christianity as it was the destruction of, of the temple and then the Bar Kokhba revolt being, you know. So once Bar Kokhba happens, there is certainly, and already with the destruction of the, the temple, there is a sense of how are we as Jews going to survive and preserve our, our identity. When they and, killed Bar Kokhba. Yeah, 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 Bar Kokhba was... He's eliminated yeah, by the Romans. Yeah, was eliminated. Yeah. So there wasn't a hope of deliverance from, yeah. from what had... Uh, yeah. and, and a resurgence, a reestablishment of Israel as a... You know, it as became a, a paper temple. Right, right. Yeah. So then, in a sense, uh, it wasn't just a reaction by any means, I would argue. The Mishnah wasn't a reaction to Christianity as much as it was an effort in light of of the political circumstances that uh, Jews found themselves in, how do we survive? How do we preserve our identity? So then you have the Mishnah and then the Talmuds written as commentaries of the Mishnah. And, and then you have kind of a written, not only do we have the Hebrew scriptures, but here's our oral Torah codified. Yeah. Thank you very much uh, for your presentation tonight. Uh, my question is, is if there was any... Um, one document or group of documents that you would send someone to for the best historically accurate testimony 
of the person and work of Jesus, what would it or what would they be? Well, you know, I, uh, I think I uh, reiterated several times in terms of uh, uh, that what we have, and, and again, I would argue you can't separate these two, the Christ of faith, the Jesus of history. When you read these documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John, you're going to always be reading about the, the, the Christ of faith. These are confessional documents. But is there a relationship between the Christ that they confess and the Jesus of history? I would say yes, absolutely. And um, uh, that's you know, something that, unfortunately, in the kind of historical skepticism uh, that, that has characterized the last you know, 200 years of the study of Jesus, this disconnect, as if, as if we can somehow um, uh, wipe, you know, anything that's confessional, wipe it off the page, and we're left with very little in terms of actually understanding the Jesus of history. I, I think, uh, you know, and I would just put before you a couple of these authors um, and, and what they've done, and again, um, uh, that that there is more that we can learn about history, even though it's not maybe our modern concept of history. You know, taking a video camera, you know, this is what we think of as history. You know exactly what I said for two hours, or, you know, because it's on tape. You know, that's our modern concept of accurate history. Um, and I think what we sh- you know, should do is, is take a step back and, and understand, uh, like uh, you have... Um, Bierskog, what is oral history in the first century and the effort of trying to preserve um, uh, what a person did or what a person said. Uh, And so I would argue you have, first of all, four Gospels that are primary sources. Secondly, you have um, the testimony of Paul, which is primarily testimony about Jesus' death and resurrection, but even Paul um, does have some Jesus tradition scattered in. For example, um, uh, the emphasis on him coming like a thief in the night you know, is not something he dreamed up, but rather is from the oral teaching of Jesus. So you have before that oral teaching of Jesus was preserved in the gospel, you have it in Paul's epistles. So if I want to know Jesus, read the New Testament. Yeah, and I would say especially um, the the four Gospels in terms of uh, understanding uh, the person of Jesus. And again, the the intertwining of the Jesus of history with the Christ of faith. That's not uh, something that can easily be, you know, all this stuff's the Christ of faith. There's no Jesus of history left. Now, I would argue that that's that's very uh, arrogant to to say that that, they can be peeled apart like that. All right, that was Dr. Gieschen. Fantastic, informative lecture that doesn't try to peel apart the historic Jesus and the Jesus of faith. When you hear somebody talking like that, what they're trying to do is undo who Jesus is because there is no way to peel apart the historic Jesus and the Jesus of faith. They're one and the same. It's the liberals in their scholarship, in quotes, that are guilty of creating a mythology, suppressing the truth, 
rejecting it and pressing it down. They don't want to have anything to do with the biblical Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins. There's no way to peel that Jesus away from the Jesus of history. They're one and the same. All right, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio, and we depend upon you, your generous financial gifts and contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Visit our website. You know the drill. There's two friendly yellow buttons there. Pick one, fill it all out, because we truly uh, need your financial support in order to continue doing what we're doing. All right, I'd love to get your feedback. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.